0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Lee Moeller, and I'm a clinical nurse specialist at Children's Hospital of Orange County. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jeffrey Alton, a cardiac intensivist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He will be speaking with us today about cardiac arrest prevention, also known as CAP. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: So, Jeffrey, I wanted to know what the impetus was of cardiac arrest prevention planning.
1: Well, um, so probably this the whole concept started uh, when I was at my last program at uh, Children's of Alabama, and, and this was probably back in about 2014, and, um, and we had a very... Uh, a very young CICU. Uh, we, uh, the, the average, there was hardly any nurses there. It was a brand new program, and so we had to uh, hire all brand new nurses. And uh, of course, uh, cardiac ICU patients are um, so volatile and at risk for having cardiac arrest. So. Uh, we we wanted to do something to kind of increase the communication uh, around the high risk patients, and uh, to uh, to allow the the nursing staff and all the other kind of first uh, care providers the ability to uh, understand what we were seeing and why the ch- child was at risk for cardiac arrest, and 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 how how those kind of um, uh, you know, risks would show themselves. You know, for instance, low cardiac output might be tachycardia. So we do a lot of teaching and simulation. It kind of served two purposes. Number one, the nurses were all brand-rate right out, of, spanking new out of a uh, uh, nursing school. So they needed to have a lot of education about uh, physiology and concepts, but also, Specific, you know, kind of a just-in-time training for uh, cardiac arrest prevention at the bedside. So we started a program. It's actually called a a RAP and a time in in Alabama. It's called Resuscitation Action Plan. And, I, and I'll be completely honest, uh, when we first started, it was like a lot of things that uh, involved cardiac arrest was so focused all around the by its term, you can tell the resuscitation of patients. And so it really started like if a if a baby started to have clinical deterioration and go down, what were the first steps of resuscitation? Um, and, and it was, you uh, know, it, it was actually kind of born in the fact that um, uh, we didn't have first, it, it was a brand new program. We didn't have first line uh, providers. So the attendings were the first line providers at nighttime. So we, we were in, in, we couldn't be, we had to sleep sometimes. And so we wanted the resuscitation to be underway if a kid were to have clinical deterioration and unfortunately, if they did actually have a cardiac arrest. And so that's how it started. And um, and that was back in 2014, 2015. We had a very high cardiac arrest rate in our cardiac surgical patients. And when we went back and reviewed the cases, it was uh, similar to uh, reviews of many cardiac patients and many programs around the country, you sit back and you notice that, oh man, look at this. There was a, you know, a period of deterioration where we could have acted, could have done something. And, and, and as we as we reviewed more and more of these cases, and uh, we, one thing we did, we got very good at resuscitation you know, it's kind of embarrassing and awesome. We got very good at putting a kid on ECMO. We got very good at, you know, getting chest compression, you know, times down to immediate chest compressions, immediate um, epinephrine uh, administrations. When a kid got in trouble, we uh, taught the nurses when in doubt, just start chest compressions. We'll be there. And so the, 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 the teaching was great for resuscitation early. But what we noticed is that we were our time to our, our chest compression duration, our time to chest compressions, our time to epinephrine administration, our ECMO, uh, ECPR went more smoothly, but our cardiac arrest rate wasn't changing. You know, we were So we were having better outcomes in some respect. And so people were saying, well, you're having a success, successful program um, because you're improving the resuscitation. And it probably was improving outcomes, especially things like neurologic outcomes because they were exposed to less CPR but what we noticed is uh, exactly like I said, the cardiac arrest rate wasn't going down. And as we reviewed them and as we were able to kind of swallow our pride, we noticed more and more we were just missing things. You know, we were missing t- periods of um, maybe it was just period of tachycardia that, that devolved into clinical deterioration. Sometimes it was a kid who maybe had an arrhythmia and we, and it, and we didn't start any arrhythmia medicine in time. So it's not always deteriorating clinical science. Sometimes it's planning even further upstream. And so we uh, at that point said, well, let's see what we can do about actually decreasing the cardiac arrest rate. You know, we're, we're pretty good at CPR right now. We're, you know, we're pretty darn good at it. so we started implementing things that were really, we looked at, we spent time and went back and looked at the reasons, uh, uh, you know, who were the kids most likely to have cardiac arrest at our center? um, and, And, you know, what, what were their, you know, what were their, cardiac lesion site you know basically the patient demographics or specific diagnoses and also some kind of clinical conditions like open chest and so forth and so on and so we identified these patients um and then we said well let's Let's figure out a way that we can prevent these kids from having a cardiac arrest. And, and the most likely etiology of having cardiac arrest in all these kids was kind of uh, post operative low cardiac output. And so we spent a lot of time uh, at the bedside teaching the nurses, um, you know, what this kid just had hypoplastic left heart. If they have low cardiac output, this is what it'll show up. And our theory was that if we, you know, it's like a just in time, just in time saves nine, type of thing. Uh, a stitch in time saves nine. That's how, how I always mess those things up. <laughs> um, but you know, you're sometimes just like a simple fluid bolus. An hour before the clinical deterioration is enough to prevent a cardiac arrest, and you never even know it. You know, I always have a famous saying of uh, "be a white cloud." Everyone talks about being a black cloud, and I have a firm belief, and I it sometimes make people upset. I said, "There's no such thing as a black cloud. A black cloud means you miss something." Usually, you know, you know, everyone—if you, everyone's seeing the same patient, same. If you have lots of cardiac arrests happening on your watch when you're the kind of general of the team, there's something that can be done better. You know, so have a white cloud, and the best thing to happen the next morning is to. Have someone say, "Well, it sure was a boring night you had," and and you say, "Yeah, it was a boring night," and 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 no one ever knows that if you prepare the team well and you augment the preload or add an inotrope at the right time, it never gets to even clinical deterioration. And so we had this theory. We did this, and and we and and you know the details don't matter for this talk, but we had a lot of you know kind of specific uh, kind of bundles that we implemented that um, directly uh, attacked the reasons that we had cardiac arrest at that center. And um, and sure enough, uh, what we saw is that the cardiac arrest rate dropped by 50% in those patients. And and, and it happened very quickly. And, And then it became, you know, everyone, it was like a total unit situation awareness. And then the same kind of concepts that one patient had about low cardiac outputs, pretty soon the teaching spread and the units cardiac arrest rate went very down. When we started that program, um, that center was the highest cardiac arrest rate in the country and very quickly within a year, it moved, you know, to the median and then below it. And so we very quickly got better. And so, so we had, a, so we had got a proof of concept in a single center. Um, and, uh, and there was a time about, uh, maybe about three years ago, actually about four years ago now, um, where we decided we want to do the PC four. uh, you know, Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, um, and at that time this, there was about uh, thirty-something centers in it. Um, we wanted to do the first kind of multi-center collaborative quality improvement project because it—it was a, it was a quality improvement uh, um, um, quality improvement consortium, but we haven't really we hadn't really done a true multi-center quality improvement. We've done a lot of research out of that um, registry, but not much quality improvement. And so we were kind of kicking around exactly what project we wanted to do. And we talked about the typical things like, well, let's do, um, extubation readiness and all these other things like this. And eventually we came up with this idea of a cardiac arrest prevention and, um, and so we presented the, the idea that we wanna do a quality improvement project um, to try to prevent cardiac arrest. And even back then it was a pretty novel idea. And I remember presenting, presenting our kind of initial ideas, which was we were going to implement a bundle of care. Um, there's gonna be about five bundles and the, and the bundles kind of focused around really increasing situational awareness of, of, of high risk for cardiac arrest. And so we presented we presented um, the bundle to the pediatric critical care uh, PC4 um, group, and it really got kind of shot down. They said, no way. This this will not work. Um, Where's your data? There's no evidence that this bundle you want to implement. And we tried to say, well, that's not the point. It's quality improvement. You know, we'll learn. We'll get better. And it was it was a no it was a no go. And so at that point, uh, what we decided to do was to try to get some data. We had single center proof of concept um, from, from the work in, in at Children's of Alabama. But what we needed was some more data. So we went to the, the, the um, PC4 data set and we analyzed across the whole uh, PC um all the centers at the time and looked, you know, we wanted to identify basically describe the multi-center epidemiology of cardiac arrest in critical care patients in the, in the cardiac ICU hadn't really been done comprehensively before we had the data granularity to do things that had never been evaluated before. And so we did that and we identified the kids who across, you know, an aggregate now, because there's there's kids who are at risk for cardiac arrest that are different in each center. But in aggregate, we identified across all these centers who the kids were that were high risk for cardiac arrest um, and the at-risk time periods. And it turned out to be not too surprising. It was it was neonates that just had cardiac surgery with bypass. It was single ventricle kids who had a shunt uh, 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 um uh, BT shunt or PA banding, so single ventral palliations that were that were neonates or young infants. And then it was medical patients admitted with an acute problem that were intubated um, shortly upon arrival to the ICU. So those were the high-risk patients. And then we identified the time period that they were most likely to arrest. And so we then came, brought this data back, the PC4, and said, okay, listen, um, this is what we, we want to attack the high-risk patients. This is what we want to do. Here they are. And it still got shot down again for the second year in a row. Um, and, and and still, it was, it was a lot of things. We were trying to convince a bunch of scientists that we wanted to do a quality improvement project. You know, they wanted the data. They wanted us to show the data. So what we did um, ultimately on the third year was really kind of spruce up the data analysis from the, the, uh, the single center out Al- children's of Alabama. We got, we got um, Darren Klugman and, and David Cooper who had started, you know, similar type programs in their, in their centers. And we got Tia Raymond who, uh, um, who was uh, of course a very um, uh, prominent get with the guidelines. And so we got that group together and, and we kind of had a group effort we, did, we presented the data of what a bundle of care looked like and that it can work at a single center. Um, and, then we, and then we demonstrated uh, all the high risk patients in PC4 and had a plan to say, okay, we believe if we implement this bundle of care, which was very, we kind of, it was kind of expert consensus, consensus you know, we, uh, but in general, it was really for the most part modeled after what we did in, in, in Alabama. And um, and we said, if we implement this bundle of care in these high risk patients, we will decrease the cardiac arrest rate enough within a year that we will move the needle for all kids um, because they do suffer a disproportionate amount of cardiac arrest. Um, so, we, we uh, did that and uh, we got kind of um, hesitant buy-in and then I spent the next probably several months, even though people buy bought in uh, recruiting and trying to rally and so forth. And we originally, we had started with about 31 centers that agreed to do it. Um, it kind of whittled down and eventually we had a, a good set of 22 centers Um that were ready to start um, in the kind of the spring of 2018, that were ready to uh, start uh, uh, trying to um, test this bundle of care and see if we could truly prevent cardiac arrest as a, as a collaborative.
0: So I think some of the hesitancy is probably coming from the viewpoint that cardiac arrest is inevitable for some of our patients. And how do you think we can move towards the belief that many arrests are preventable?
1: Well, I I think, um, I think we've done it, you know, and that's, that's the exciting thing about this project. You know, you know, the first, the first accomplishment of the cardiac, you know, the PC Four Cardiac Arrest Prevention Collaborative, is we 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 pulled off a quality improvement project with twenty two centers of of you know prideful, stubborn people that wanted to do things differently. You know, that's that's our nature, right? And so we got twenty two centers to agree to do things pretty much the same way and work together to try to prevent cardiac arrest. And so that was the first thing we pulled off, and that was that's that was amazing in itself. But the most even more exciting is that we decrease cardiac arrest. And so when we are actually, you know, the kind of results of this whole project are in submission for publication and hopefully that publication will come out pretty soon. And so the direct answer to your question is that scientists need data, you know, we, and even when, you know, we're all so prideful, we're all, we all, we all know it all. We're all super smart. And, you know, but at the same time, we need we we trust each other, but we need verification that you know what you're saying is really true. And so in in, in all honesty, Lee, what we saw is that we decreased the cardiac arrest rate in the high risk risk, risk patients by almost 40 something percent. And in in by doing that, since those kids suffered a disproportionate amount of cardiac arrest, we decreased the cardiac arrest rate in all the kids by Twenty-eight to thirty percent, and um, and so it's an amazing accomplishment, and um, and so that's uh, I think that is a direct answer to your question. If you want people to do things, you have to show them the data, and that was the key to getting this project going in the first place. Is that here we have a center that did a very similar implementation, a similar bundle of practices. Aimed at preventing cardiac arrest. If we do the same thing across multiple centers, we can we can we can um, replicate it, and that's what you want to do with anything, right? I mean, at the end of any kind of quality or study that's done in a couple centers, the, the question is always, you know, is this translatable to other centers? And what we did is we took a single center proof of concept and proved it could happen across multiple cardiac ICUs. And these cardiac ICUs are different. It's not like you know, and and that was one of the remarkable things about the um, the this bundle of care. I mean, the bundle care, so let me just say quickly what the bundle care is. The bundle care is, um, is really some, I always say this is exactly what we should be doing on all patients all the time. And so there is, there, we do something called, that's kind of the center and the focus of it is something called the CAP safety huddle. And what this is, is a multidisciplinary huddle that's meant to happen twice a day. Independent of your rounds. So it happens twice a day. And during this huddle, you you bring all the care team together, which includes the physician, the nurse, bedside nurse, the charge nurse, the resource nurse, whatever the equivalent is at your institution, um, the respiratory therapist, and then the first line providers, whether it be fellows or nurse practitioners, and then anybody else who wants to come. And And so you have this cap safety huddle and the point of the cap safety huddle is to say, here we have little patient Jones, little patient Jones is high risk for cardiac arrest for the following reasons. And if this kid starts to have clinical deterioration, this is what it'll look like. And, and here are the things that we're going to do to prevent, to prevent that clinical deterioration from going further towards cardiac arrest. And, 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 and so that was a, the real cool part of it is that built into this is really kind of empowerment of the nurses to, number one, identify deterioration. Number two, act. You know, in, in some of the more progressive centers that implemented this, they were actually having their um, nurses give fluid boluses, give, you know, make medication adjustments within the guidelines of what we discussed on round without, without notification, you know, and, you know, this is the, and so that was it, once you can empower the nurses to actually be a a integral part of the team, it really, it really caught hold. And so But and then always there was, you know, so if some kids, you know, just keep on going and and they do end up having a cardiac arrest. And so we do always talk about the first lines of resuscitation where this to happen, which is often led by one of the other bundles. It's a five element bundle. One is a cap safety huddle. And the other is the other is everyone had to have bedside epinephrine. And so there's so much focus on a bedside epinephrine. Oh, that prevents cardiac arrest. And I said, no, it doesn't. It kind of does, but it rescues you. You know, that's if you if you're given bedside epinephrine, that means that you've missed it up, up you know, not necessarily, but most times there was there is other warning signs where you had opportunity to act. And so bedside epinephrine does decrease cardiac arrest, but it doesn't kind of prevent it, you know, really, you know, you still, you're about to arrest. And as you know, very well, being a bedside person yourself, you know, sometimes you give epinephrine and you probably should have started chest compressions, you know, so it's always kind of nebulous, you know, if a kid's getting CPR or not when they're getting epinephrine. So that's a, you know, so that we always try to focus on, you know, don't focus on the epinephrine. Don't focus on it. That is, that's your rescue. The, the real power in this is a team getting together and having a shared mental model, situational awareness about, you know, why the kid's at high risk for cardiac arrest, how it's going to show itself, and then how we're going to prevent it from going any further. So that's the CAP safety huddle. The epinephrine, like we said, is another bundle element. And then there's another element, which is called, um, uh, it was kind of called a, a pre-sedation discussion. And so this this was, it, it, w- it didn't mandate, Pre-sedation. A lot of people were worried about that when we were first starting this. It's just this discussion. So you and me would have a discussion, and the whole team would have a discussion. Okay, this kid's at high risk. Is a high risk patient. Do you think that we need to pre-medicate him for X, Y, or Z procedure, whether it be venous puncture or suck tracheal suction As you know very well, some kids sometimes have some bad outcomes from tracheal suction And the answer is either yes or no. And then if you, as long as my, I believe so much. If as long as you talk about it, it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as you. Talk talk about something it's going to be. And so I think talking about the presentation often will make people say, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, and then, um, so the other thing is, uh, so the fourth element was a vital sign uh, parameters. So we had two things. We had vital sign goals and then vital sign kind of parameters, you know, the kind of usual thing to go into the monitor, the parameters like where the, where the doctor set it to be 100 to 180, you know, which is completely worthless when it comes to like preventing things from happening. You know As you know very well, you can be 100, 140, 150, 160, 170, the alarm never goes off. And so we set, you always wanted to set targets and say, before we left the bedside, I'd say, hey, listen, for this neonate, I think the heart rate should be 140 to 160. All right, that's our target range. It may not always be there, but that's where we think it should be. And if it's not there, I want you to you know consider these possibilities of, as why it may not be. And and we can do these kind of first couple of things, you know, whether it be a fluid bowl, a sedation, whatever it may be, and you know, kind of troubleshoot again, giving autonomy and empowerment to the nurses, and then and, and then also the first line providers or the trainees. And they work through it. And if, if you work on it a half hour and you can't make it better, the answer is not adjusting your vital sign parameter. The, the answer is you know, you know, moving up the chain of command, which is getting the attending, and then having a discussion. And it very well may be that hey, I, I was wrong, heart it's 165, we've done everything, we're gonna change our parameters, but that discussion had to happen at the bedside. And so then the other part of it, you had they had to be programmed into the monitor. So those those are the first, those are the four elements. And then the fifth one was just we asked everyone to actually have a true cardiac arrest uh, review. And um, a lot of people have these built in, but some of the key things we wanted to see, which was kind of very, we didn't audit this very much, and so it's it's for a future um, study, but we wanted to see that um, the kind of, the learning points got back to the first line staff, you know, that, and sometimes that's the part that doesn't really happen. Um, So that was the bundle. Um, Once again, I've been talking too long and I forgot what the actual original question was, Oh, how are we going to make people believe it's preventable? We're making it believe them because the science is sound, the data is overwhelmingly convincing. And if so, if you're a, if you're a program and, and if you're a leader in your program or an administrator, and you know that there's, there's 22 centers that worked on cardiac arrest prevention, decreased cardiac arrest at their centers, and you don't become part of it. I, I, would, I would say that's just, it's not what you should be doing. If you're true to your point that you want to, you want to provide the best care to patients. But I think that's the first step in spreading the word. And I can tell you, Lee, that I talked to um, including like your center, right? You're interested in talking some more about it. And, and I've talked to probably, uh, once or twice a month, there's a new center that contact me and want information about what they can do. So it's, it's slowly but surely word of mouth that this project has happened, is out there. And um, and so I think it's um, how we're going to make people believe cardiac arrest is preventable. Um, it is. It just is. Is every cardiac arrest preventable? Probably not. But in all honesty, um, it depends how you define that. Because some cardiac arrest prevent- is preventable by implementing um, End of life matters earlier, right? And some is preventable by planning better. You know, we think about cardiac as preventable, like you have a patient in front of you. Can you recognize a deterioration? You know, not always. I mean, but that's not what we're always talking about. Sometimes it's planning and, and it goes into this, you know, and and if you have discussions about these patients and and if you, you know, the you know, our early target was really post-operative patients. I think we might talk about this in a second, but really we targeted post-operative patients because those, that was a low-lying fruit. You know, that was, that was where we saw the most variability across the centers in the cardiac arrest rates, with some centers being having almost no cardiac arrest in, in the post-operative patients, some having very high. And so it was a low-lying fruit to us because it, it was a common theme, a period of deterioration followed by cardiac arrest. So let's let's prevent the deterioration or act at the time of deterioration and prevent the cardiac arrest. And so that's that's what actually, when we look at back at the kind of the initial work in Alabama, what we saw is we almost completely eliminated all post-operative cardiac arrest um, in kind of the early post-operative period. And that's what we've done here in Cincinnati too. And um, so th- it was a very high post-operative cardiac arrest rate we all, it never happens anymore. I mean, and, and that's been in about two year period where we've, we've almost eliminated all of that. And now our cardiac arrestor and some of the more complex patients, like the ones that be in a tertiary or quaternary center, whatever you really call us, you know, where the, the kid who has, you know, disease of three other programs turned down or severe pulmonary hypertension, severe heart failure, all these kind of other comorbidities. Those are the kids that are, you know, a little more challenging because the same things don't work for all those patients, but you can, you can pretty much for post-operative cardiac arrest. It's pretty much the same thing all the time. Here's how you recognize low cardiac output. Let's do the things to prevent it. There's variations of the theme, as you know, very well, but when it comes down to it, the theme's pretty similar. And even before that, the theme is, um, you know, get get the whole team on the same page. Get get them all agreeing when you leave the bedside that they all agree with the attending exactly what they see and how they're going to keep this kid safe. And 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 it is a you know the <clears throat> I've done things at my last two programs. Um, I did I did it last program. It didn't it didn't make me very popular. But um, it was very effective, and that was a l- to show people show the attendings the cardiac arrest rate while they were while they were in charge, and it's incredibly variable, and and I'm fortunate enough to have you know low cardiac arrest rate both that place and here you know and and, and it's not because I'm some genius or super smart person it's 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 really all about team preparation. Um, and um and, and really if and I tell people if you want to improve your cardiac arrest rate, I don't need to, I don't need to teach you the physiology, how to be better doctors, none of that. It's really just how to prepare the team to see what you see and make them understand what you want to what you want to know about and prevent. And that that goes a long way to preventing the cardiac arrest. It really is just teamwork, training up the nursing staff, getting them to be true partners with with the doctors and, and, and then you know magic will happen.
0: Jeffrey, you mentioned some of the low-lying fruit. Um, one of my questions was, do you think that there's a point, whether from this project itself or from your experience, in a trajectory point in the patient's illness where cardiac arrest is most preventable, such as immediate post-op, first 24 hours, or after admission, or later down the road?
1: Well, I mean, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. I mean, I think when you look at common themes, The postoperative cardiac arrest kid, uh, the I'm sorry, the postoperative patient, especially the neonates, they're they're a risk for all the in in anybody who takes care of kids like yourself or myself can probably identify these. The early postoperative period is a time of kind of tenuous, very volatile physiology, which you know takes expertise to manage and recognize when things are because sometimes it's so subtle, and the reason the reason a kid, the, the cardiac arrest rate is so high in cardiac patients is because they don't have the physiologic reserve of like in the pediatric ICU or the NICU. I've been in the pediatric ICU and you can, you can, you can miss a lot of stuff and make lots of mistakes. You know, it's, it's, it's why in all honesty, that I, I believe that um, the pediatric ICU has been slow to have attendings in house because you don't, it's hard to prove that they're necessary because you can, you can have your physiologic reserve cardiac patients don't have physiologic reserve. And, and then sometimes the early signs are pretty subtle. And so you have to have the team all on alert, looking for those kind of subtle signs and and being well ready to act upon them, even though it's not obvious that it's going to prevent cardiac arrest because it's not, you know, you don't get to, you know, do like, Titrate an inotrope, or give give um, give a, a dose of sedation, or give a fluid bolus, and then get a like a you know balloons fall from the sky in a big celebration. You just prevented cardiac arrest. You know it doesn't happen like that. But the proof is when you do that all the time, and then you look back a couple months later, you go, well, holy gee, I mean, there hasn't been any cardiac arrests, and it's and it's not like you didn't do anything else except prepare the team. And so that's that's the challenge with this is it's it's hard to it's hard to say what he did right there, what she did right there was directly responsible for pending cardiac arrest. You don't know it was, you're not, you're not God. You can't predict the future, but the proof is in the time. You know, you keep, you keep doing the same kind of good habits, preparing the team, cardiac arrest rate will just go down. So I, I, always, as always, I start talking tangentially here. So your question was about, um, about time periods. For the post-operative kit, it's a it's it's, it's an early post-operative period and then it's around extubation, you know, and so you know we we want the time to be, you know, the kind of the high alert periods to be then. You can't you can't have high alert for every single patient, right? I mean, you can't all the time because there's not enough resources. This this does take time and effort. It does take time and effort to round on these patients twice a day. So we have to be able to give back the kind of the deliverables and show if you spend this time, you will prevent cardiac arrest. But we can't have, you can't do all these things on every single patient all the time. And um, you can take some key short concepts and bring another. So you have to figure out exactly when those high time periods are, like you say, and are suggesting. And And I'll tell you one amazing thing about what we found is that, when you look at when you look at the kind of direct time period where we spent doing cap safety huddles those twice a day huddles um, and across these in across it. now I, I say there's 22 centers of, of, in the collaborative really there was 15 that did everything that were that were like did everything kind of we a priori identified what you need to do to be Full implementer. There's really 15 centers that fully implemented everything and did it perfectly. And those 15 centers. So when we look at those across those 15 centers of the 22, they they implemented a cap safety huddle in only 8% of the kids, 8% of the time, 8% of patient days. All right. And so that is my direct response to people who say I don't have time for this. So by by implementing in 8% of the days, and this was just. This was aggregate data. So we identified the high risk periods, which were the first seven days post-op around extubation. And then, and then the first 48 hours of a medical patient, if they're intubated, that's it. So that's what, those are kind of the mandatory time periods. And then we, we said, tell everyone, please extend it. If you think a kid is high risk, your center for, please extend it. Um, So those are only mandatory time periods, those first seven days. So, During that mandatory time period, we saw the cardiac arrest rate in those 15 centers drop by 35 percent, only by attacking 8 percent of the patient days. And so, pretty, you know, it just shows the power of the of the project. And, And some of it's because some there was bleed over to other patients. I have no doubt about it. And and I mentioned kind of the three categories of patients that were mandatory: the two kind of surgical and then the medical patients. We actually encouraged centers to Uh, look at their own because look at their own center and identify high risk patients. In in Cincinnati, we're one that we have a preeminent ENT program. And a weird kind of fluke about our cardiac ICU is we have all these airway reconstructions in our CICU. Very unique. Um, And and we were having lots of cardiac arrests in those patients, right? And and you can't like if no one else is having those patients in their CICU. And so we we put the CAP safety huddle on those patients. And and so in other 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 programs were noticing that, oh my, we have we have pulmonary hypertension, we have a lot of uh, 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 acute decompensated heart failure. And so they were they were at their own centers using the cap safety huddle. And that's kind of the proof that pe- the attend, you know, the physicians who at first were very hesitant started to buy in because the, the additional, the other category where you just had your own center specific criteria where you implemented the bundle that grew to be a third of all the pay- cat patients we had. And so it was very exciting to see that. And, um, and so, that's 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 my answer direct answer to your question is that for the post operative patients it's pretty clear early post operative period around extubation you know and probably uh, in the medical patients first 48 hours if you do that simply you know, you'll decrease arrest but you should modify it to your own center I mean, you should you shouldn't be doing, you know, keeping the cap safety huddle going for seven days if there's no cardiac arrest ever in that time period, you know, or if you have cardiac arrest happening in eight, nine days and you should extend it. You know, so we encourage all centers to, and we help them, you know, kind of the, as a center, as you know, this this collaborative went on, you know, we had. At the center of our collaborative, we had Cardiac, Network, Cardiac Networks United and um, PC4 um, work together and we created kind of a central core of quality improvement uh, safety officers, um, experts who would, we would do, we, we did like monthly webinars where we did lots of teaching and, and uh, lots of shared learning, you know, who, who's doing what, what are the obstacles we would actually ask one center to present each each time and, you know, what obstacles are you coming with? And, you know, as you know very well that, oh, and center, oh, we're having the same obstacle. How'd you attack? And it was just, it was, a, it was amazing to watch the shared learning work. Um, and so, but we encouraged with the help of our kind of central safety um, experts, to look at your own data at your own center, find out who the high-risk patients specific to your center were and put the cap bundle on those. Um, and so we, we have not actually analyzed all these uh, other categories you know, that are individual at each center. We're very interested in seeing how that differs among centers and that, that kind of analysis
2: will happen in the near future. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor of this episode, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Cincinnati Children's Heart Institute was formed in 2008 with the mission to transform pediatric heart disease through the integration of clinical care, molecular cardiovascular research, and education. The Heart Institute team has pioneered many advances in pediatric cardiology including a first-in-nation ventricular assist device in a Duchenne muscular dystrophy patient, numerous transcatheter non-surgical intervention therapies, echocardiography of complex cardiac malformations and the evaluation of cardiac disease during exercise stress. As one of the largest pediatric cardiology programs in the nation, the world renowned team at the Heart Institute at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center has achieved outcomes that rival or surpass those at other top centers for even the most challenging cases. Thank you again to Cincinnati Children's Heart Institute for sponsoring this episode.
0: I think it's really obvious that multi-center collaboration and multi collaboration was a big success for this project. So it's really exciting to see how, when we all come together, that we can be successful together. And I, I really am excited by that. So switching gears a little bit um, in talking about sustainability and how this has impacted culture at your institution or what you've heard from other institutions, um, what do you think is one of the keys or keys to successful implementation and ensuring sustainability of a CAP bundle or CAP program?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's a multidisciplinary project and and like all quality improvement, there's so many quality improvement projects out there that you read about. And, and it's all this, and you ask a question for the very reason that you go back and take a look a couple years later and then nothing's been, you know, there's nothing, there's no evidence that it ever happened. Right. Um, and so, what we've know when we we did a kind of a um, a survey of all the all the programs exactly because one of the wonders of this of this project was that it it allowed tremendous flexibility because we understood that every center had different resources different manpower and so you could you could modify the bundles you could modify your team that you had and what we found. Um, and, and we haven't formally analyzed it but it's very clear the centers that were seeing the biggest cardiac arrest improvement were the centers that had a, a very strong nurse champion and a very strong motivated um, physician champion and the physician champion was always for the most part a young person you know who was uh, fresh and energetic um it was it was harder to convince get buy-in from the, the more established physicians because early, like one of the things you said earlier is that it's been well established. It's been well kind of the paradigm is that these kids just arrest. It just happens. And so it takes a, it takes a, you have to change mindset. And it's hard to change mindset of very smart people, you know, and say, listen, it's not, you can prevent this. And I know in, in, because you, in some respect, you're telling someone that for many years they've they've seen preventable arrests happen, and you are saying that. But it's, it's one of the things that that's that's the that's the wonder of uh, you know being part of collaboratives and in the in the bigger picture is that you know working together, we've identified that we can prevent this. And and so, answer your question is we saw I think for sustainability. Like all things, you have to get it ingrained into the culture. You know, it has to be in Cincinnati. Uh, we've been, we've done a very good job of keeping it kind of the energy there behind us. Hasn't been always easy. We've seen little lapses here and there, but we have. It, it has become kind of a, like one of the unit-based quality metrics that we follow. And um, so out in, the, out, in the, out in the plain view of everyone is our Cardiac Arrest Prevention Board. And we have on, on, on that board big, huge signs are about 12 inches tall of the number of days between cardiac arrests. And so we know, and, and we have the nurses change that each day to try to increase it, increase it. And, know, uh, and, and during this project, you know, in Cincinnati, we've, we've, we've achieved two different records and it keeps getting better. And so it's really exciting for them. And, and the whole unit feels it when that number goes back down to zero, you know, they feel it. And, um, and so I think that you have to get the whole, you know, it sits up there with CLABSI and CAUTI and pressure it's, it's another metric that we follow as important, but, The real success is because uh, we have good nurse champions. Now, some of our nurse champions have moved on, and we have a very good, uh, you know, Amy Flores, one of our nurse practitioners, is a very good champion from the nurse practitioner standpoint. We're working hard to kind of reestablish kind of the bedside nursing uh, champions again because we we saw that slip just a little bit um, because the nurses went you know moved on to bigger and better things. But I think for sustainability, you have to get buy in first, which was a hard hardest, biggest obstacle is with getting buy-in. And when we, we created a kind of a, off sh- a nurse, uh, nurse kind of sub- subset of leadership um, – Uh, that was um, led by Janie Garza from um, Medical City in Dallas. Um, So, we had a bunch of nurses that got together and and they talked every month also. Um, So, all the kind of key nurse leadership in the unit and um, they talked about obstacles in the unit and what to bring back to the unit to try to improve empowerment. And I think that, and and try to engage the physicians because you know very well, I mean, if you're going to get something implemented in a unit, it has to start from the nursing staff. You know, they're the, they're the most important thing to establishing a a quality improvement project or any type of project, any type of um, clinical change has to be bought in from the nurses and when they buy in from the nurses and they think it's important, um, then it'll spread to the physicians because the, um, the nurses will hold the physicians accountable. And, and so that, what I I think was a really powerful part of this collaborative was this kind of this nurse group, um, this kind of nurse champions from all the centers that got together, and it shows how important that we thought this program was for all these centers because they donated their nurse champion and they worked together amongst themselves and brought back their learnings to our, to our bigger group to try to figure out, you know, how we can overcome some of the obstacles early on. So I think it has to have strong nurse leadership. You have to have, you have to have um, phys- good young, energetic physician leadership. It can't be the it can't be the director, like a lot of projects like the director says, "Oh, yeah, I'm doing this son." It has to be someone who's actively involved, energetic going around, talking to people, teaching people because there's going be natural there's going be natural hesitancy when it first starts about what is this. I think that hesitancy is going to go away as the data comes out because you can't, you can't deny the data. You can, you can't just say I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. You can you used to be able to say that. I mean, I, I mean, I couldn't, there's not much to say to my attendings when they said, I do not want to do it. And I, I would just say, trust me. And you know, that only goes so far, especially when you're asking to do a little bit more work. Um, I think having people to be able to, and then I think the third kind of thing to is sustainability is, is getting your hospital buy-in, which, I think is that if you can tell your hospital you're preventing cardiac arrest, hopefully decreasing mortality, um, and you know, and that's a that's a very important thing that hospitals follow and track. If you can show them, they can lend you some of their quality officers to help with you know kind of data collection, showing the data to the to the nursing staff and so forth. We I think it's very important as you do any project to give the feedback you know very regularly to the nursing staff what actually they are accomplishing look what you're doing together. You are reducing cardiac arrest. If you, you know, and as we know, um, well, I'll just say it, if you have a cardiac arrest, your chance, to, if you're a cardiac patient, there's a 50% chance you're going to die. And so if you prevent two cardiac arrests, the, you know, kind of the math almost works out that you can prevent a kid from dying. And so if you can prevent cardiac arrest, it's uh, it's going to save kids' lives. And, and then I think getting the data back to the to the, to the, to the frontline staff that they actually are making a difference is one of the most important things in sustainability.
0: So considering the healthcare provider's intuition, we always have those gut feelings of which patients are going to arrest or not or um, what patients are going to go south on us. Have you seen CAP planning and the CAP bundle affect the intuition and gut feelings we all get about certain patients?
1: I think the, the, the wonderful thing about the CAP is um, it allows – it allows flexibility to um and to enact the same kind of principles of cardiac arrest preven- prevention on the kids you have a gut feeling about, and so and, and it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier. If you have a gut feeling a kid's going to get in trouble, where we encourage in Cincinnati and then across all the programs, those are those other category where we say, okay, have a discussion about it, and you know you don't always have to do a perfect, you know, a complete complete bundle implementation. You know, I think that's a wonderful thing about this. You know, when I first started this program, I was all hot on the, Oh, it's gotta be these bundles gotta be done this way. But really what I've learned is if you get a group of smart people together with the same kind of goal to prevent cardiac arrest, and they all, they buy into the fact that cardiac arrest is preventable, they will find a way, you know, within the constructs of kind of a general constructs of a prevention program. They'll find a way. And it's been amazing to see how the programs have modified it to work in their program. So I think the direct answer to your question is that I think it rewards gut feeling because uh, you will implement things. You know, the worst thing the worst thing in the world is having a gut feeling that something bad was going to happen and then sitting there the next day and saying, well, crap, something bad happened. Right. And I think that this, if you have a gut feeling and you and you do, you, you kind of implement some of the concepts of, it, you know, at the minimum having discussion about this is why I have a, I have this gut feeling, you know, change that gut feeling to words, you know, because that's a lot of, that's a, sometimes what the problem is, is there's, there's a disconnect, you know, that I'm sitting here as an attending physician, got, I'm really worried about this patient either the nurse is not or the nurse is really worried about a patient and I'm not, you know, and, and, and that's, that's what happens. And the, the wonder of this is getting together and, and listening and saying, okay, why are you worried? You know, put it into words that, you know, kind of objective, what is your gut feeling? You know, what, if this, if you're right, how is it gonna, how is this kid gonna deteriorate? And then, and then, and then you implement, you know, a discussion and, 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 and implement the cardiac arrest prevention kind of um, concepts. And, and if, uh, if the kid doesn't have a cardiac arrest there isn't anybody in the world that can tell you that your gut feeling wasn't rewarded. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot better than um, sitting there the next day and saying, I knew something was wrong. You know, and, and if you know something's wrong and, 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 it, and it works both ways, because we 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 uh, in Cincinnati and other programs, we've asked them if the nurse is worried that is in you we should listen to them and they should become a cardiac arrest prevention patient. And um, and it, sometimes we in a in a Alabama, I know this is a problem and it, it became a problem here too is that too many kids. Everyone wanted everyone to be a cardiac arrest prevention patient because the the nurses love it, you know, because sometimes we get a little lazy because of time constraints of just kind of having complete discussions, educations, the nurses and the trainees, they all love being talked to and, and, and being on a shared, having a shared mental model of all the patients. And so you can't, you can't, uh, you can't do cardiac arrest prevention um, concepts on everyone because there's not enough time, but you know, in all honesty, you can, you can implement different parts of it on different patients.
0: Uh, this is a more of a two part question. So can you envision CAP planning working in other ICUs, potentially adult ICUs, other PICUs, NICUs? And if a hospital wants to implement CAP planning into their organization, where do you think they should start first?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt, and you know that is one of the um, that's one of the reasons we think this work is really important. Um, the reason the reason uh, the cardiac ICU, the pediatric cardiac ICU, was a good kind of pilot place for this work because there's you know I, there's really no you're not going to go find cardiac arrest prevention work out there. There actually was a recent. Um, publication this year, the first kind of real direct uh, um, publication, and a lot of similar similarities to what we did. And it came from the United Kingdom. They focus a lot on epinephrine spritzers and uh, so forth. But <clears throat> one of the, the powers of this is we think that the concepts are really translatable to almost any place where there's acutely ill patients, adults, Pediatric, you know, pediatric ICU, the medical, you know, the general medical ICU, and the cardiac ICU, because there are there are specific things about the bundles, but really it's the same concepts. Identify who your at risk patients are, and that's a, that is really the only thing that needs to be modified. You know, identify who the at risk patients are, and in effect, we kind of showed proof of concept with this because we identified across these twenty two centers. Twenty-two different sets of high-risk patients, in addition to the mandatory patients, all these centers had different high-risk patients, and and I just described to you um, in Cincinnati how we have these—they shouldn't be in a cardiac ICU. They're medical patients, right? They all have a cardiac; they have a trachea. A trachea that got reconstructed, right? And so those—that's a medical patient that we can prevent cardiac arrest, and we have, you know, by specific planning around those kids, um, you know. So really, it goes back to identifying your high risk population identifying your high risk time periods Every, everyone knows how to do that you look back at your data look back at your data and you can do it and you 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 shoot higher than you need to and then you fine tune it later and then and then the rest is just it's just just in time training shared mental models situational awareness and it really is that simple why is this kid that high risk how is it going to identify? How are they going to deteriorate if they did? And so you are telling the whole team how to recognize it. And what are we going to do to prevent that deterioration? And that's it. You know, and, and, then, and then you go back and, and then you look at the results. You know, you, you do the cardiac arrest review. So if you do have some cardiac arrest, but there's, there's many centers in this, uh, Lee, who are going like months now without cardiac arrest. And, you know, Cincinnati, we used to have five or six a, a month. And now we're having, we're going, you know, 50, 60 days between cardiac arrests now. And it's just, it, it really is amazing. Um, probably the most, one of the most successful centers, um, uh, shout out uh, to them is um, is um, Rady Children's in um, in your neck of the woods, kinda. Um, they they went many months without cardiac arrest, and they had a pretty high kind of cardiac arrest, and they just went many months because. Your 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 friend David Warho was an amazing champion to it, and and so were all the other young attendees there, and, and their whole team. They were some of the early adopters, and they they kind of presented to the rest of us what they were doing, and we learned from them, and and spread it out. And so you know the the bottom line, the answer, direct answer to your question again. Here I go, tangential thinking. It is absolutely spreadable to we because the concepts are not that complex. It really is just communication, communication, communication. And that's, that's really all there is to it. And if we talk about it and prepare teams to prevent it, um, kids, kids, adults, neonates, they all kind of, they, they have deterioration in, in predictable ways. Uh, if you know, based on their kind of a, the cohort of patient that they are. Um, so was that both parts of your question?
0: It sounded like you had also mentioned that where facilities should start is identifying which patients are at highest risk for prevention or prevention of cardiac arrest. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, in uh, and, and it's different. I I know, having done this work, gotten in the weeds, this work at two different programs, um, the the kids that. Um, our highest risk here in Cincinnati are, are not the same as the ones that are highest risk in Alabama. And so you, that's why, you know, there's not, when you look at the whole project, you know, when, when this becomes kind of when we kind of share all the the kind of the exact details of the bundle with the world, um, you will go well, I mean, there's really not anything exciting and novel and you might even go as far as say, Oh, I already do that. A lot of people say, well, I already do this with all their patients. And I say, well, Concentrate on it a little bit more and your cardiac arrest rate will go down.
0: Regarding predictive analytics to predict patient trajectory and illness, is there a space where cap planning and these technologies can coexist?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's so much, uh, there's a lot of work being done with uh, using uh, kind of, you know, multiple data points uh, to try to identify, you know, how, you know, Algorithms for cardiac arrest, high risk, and so forth, and you know, etiometry, the T3 stuff is is probably the one that's out there that it has the most um, kind of spread. the The, the amazing thing about T- no, not amazing thing, the somewhat kind of disappointing thing about T3 etiometry. There's not much data that it, that is clinically helpful to you know pre- to improve outcomes. There's small projects, but there's not much. And there's other there's other kind of uh, artificial intelligence, you know, in And so I think that there's no doubt that um, there's opportunity um, to use use, uh, some of that data, whether it be physiologic-based data, um, you know, inotrope scores, heart rates, blood pressures, venous saturations, you know, it just seems to me, I'm not smart enough to talk about it, but it seems to me that those things certainly should be used to identify at risk for deterioration, even before we identify it. You know, that's what, that's the whole goal of this program is identify. We say, here's some, based on my experience, uh, you know, here are some signs that this kid is having early signs of deterioration. But in all honesty, we should be able to, you know, slight tachycardia, slight venous desaturation, maybe some NEARS monitoring, whatever it may be, all put together, say, okay, they can identify clinical deterioration, you know, 20 minutes even earlier, and then you, and then you prepare the team, what you do in that setting, you know, so it's, I do believe those things are, um, are important. Um, Unfortunately, no one's, you know, yeah, I know a lot of people working on it, but um, no one has really shown the kind of benefit of those to prevent cardiac arrest at this point. Um, And we certainly would be, we are, in the process right now of trying to look back at our T3 and idiometry data, in all honesty, as a single center, to try to identify if we can see which what what those kind of trends look like with cardiac arrest, and unfortunately, right now it's kind of all scattered. So the one thing I do know is it's not going to be a single point because you know people like myself who've been around in a while we would have noticed at one point if there was like one data point or that always came out when a kid by time we've had you know no matter how silly and goofy we are we'd have, at some point we've had pattern recognition to recognize that hey this number goes to 12 every time the kid has a cardiac arrest. So you know it is a, I think there's a tremendous potential for growth in that area um, and you know I'm sure there's very smart people um, working with the data right now to make that happen.
0: Thank you again, Jeffrey, for speaking with me today about cardiac arrest prevention. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find the information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info and educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Graves was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution license.